Hello and welcome to The Global Citizen, a podcast by the journal Katoikos.world and FOGS, the Foundation for Global Governance and Sustainability. In this beautifully unorthodox episode, I had the pleasure of exploring one of the most ancient ways we've bonded with each other since the beginnings of our species. The function of storytelling for humans has been quintessential, especially for our transition from life as hunter-gatherers to the new social environment of civilization. The stories we tell ourselves and the others around us shape the reality we live in and ultimately work as the catalyst for our mutual understanding of the world. Stories show what's real, what isn't real, and where we fit in all of it. My guest for today was Jamie Olivero, a storyteller from Canada. Jamie started telling stories early in his life and has been doing so for more than 45 years. His love of storytelling has led him to many places around the world, from Africa to Australia, in search of indigenous stories that contain fundamental lessons about the human experience. In our conversation, he was kind enough to share some of them, sharing their origins and offering beautiful insights into each of them. We also talked about the pacifying power of stories, how they promote and nurture understanding and compassion, and how they're evolving in our digital age. So thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Jamie, welcome to the show. I'm very, very excited to have you here. I am just as excited to be here. This is a great treat for me, a gift. (laughs) So could you give us a small introduction of yourself? Okay, so I'm 72. I live in the heartland of Canada, the Canadian prairie. Uh, If you were to look on a map, I live just southeast of the city of Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is just above North Dakota, if you look on a map. But I grew up on, until my late 20s, on the east coast of the States, just east of New York City, North Shore, Long Island. I have worked my day job for 48 years now, although the last couple of years have been mostly online, have been working in schools in different arts and education programs. I started out on Long Island being schooled and and mentored in using improv and theater games to animate curriculum. And to that toolbox of skills, I brought physical animation and music, things that I had learned and been mentored in by some amazing people, blah, blah, blah. And I was there working with one of the founding members of this children's theater improv company. I worked there for six years and Fiona was ready for a change. And there is an expression that applies to me that I have horseshoes up the wazoo, which means things happen serendipity is a major thread in my life. And so right about the time I was starting to get a little burnt out, I had the opportunity to be offered a job in Canada, in Winnipeg. And I, you know, this was late 70s. So there's no, I know it's hard to believe, Jason, but there was no internet yet. You know, there was like, so you had to look up on a map where Winnipeg was and all that. But I picked up and went to Winnipeg and I was going to stay for a year and just kind of chill out and sort of get myself in focus a bit more, maybe kind of find a little more emotional maturity and responsibility. And then it was two years and then it was three years. And now it's 42 years later. And a lot of it has to do with, well, in the beginning, the sense of open space, like where I live is prairie, you know, it's like farmland. It's like, Oh yeah. Walk out in the middle of it. You know, completely understand that. Yeah. 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 And so part of that was it. And it just gave me, time to take a breath and sort of see where I was at. And then, you know, like a couple of years in, I met, I had this rule. I had this rule when I first started working in schools, not to socialize with teachers because it's predominantly, you know, as a heterosexual male, you know, it's predominantly a, there's a lot of women teaching. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had this rule for myself. I had a certain personal code of ethics and whatever it was, you don't socialize with teachers because then you're working in a classroom and you're just kind of checking out the teacher at the same time you're doing your stuff. It's like split focus. That's not good. And I've only broken that rule once. And we've been together for like 35, 36 years. 
So <laughs> my wife is a retired teacher. She taught for 35 years up for elementary. And right about the time that we met, I woke up one morning in the dead of winter and realized that all I had was a bag of tricks. And that's when I decided that I, you know, there's all these signposts, blah, blah, blah. But I decided I wanted to go to East Africa to find out where stories began. So I started talking to people. And within six weeks, I had a list of contacts to write to. And I got a grant to travel so I could learn to bring back to put in schools. And by following September, I was in Nairobi. I was in Kenya. <laughs> and that you know, that was the first big trip I ever took. And I, I was taken in, like she became my like mother, African mother, by a professor at the university who is just like taking off the top of your head and letting the world in. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, I found three core mentors that have made me what I am as a storyteller, who got me to understand that this is what I was supposed to be doing got me understand the power of it, got me understand the responsibility that comes with it. Mm -hmm. Well, I can see from what you're saying, why storytelling has grown to be so important to you and why you decided to dedicate your life to stories. But I'd love to hear what a story really is. Okay. You know what, Amber? Amber. You know Amber? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So it's very, it can be very expensive, very precious thing. If you have a necklace or beads of amber, but amber is petrified tree sap is what amber is. And if you look at a bead of amber, especially a nice big bead, whatever you see in there, you know, whether it's, it's bits of bark or sometimes even there's a little insect in there, that is a moment frozen in time that is millions of years old or hundreds of thousands of years old, depending, right? And you hold it up to the light and the warm light of the sun warms it up. And it's like you're seeing that moment again when that bit of bark or that little insect was caught in that amber mm-hmm. and it comes alive again in that moment. That's one of the things that stories do. They take a moment in time an idea, a thought, an event, and they hold that moment so that every time you look at it, every time you tell the story, that moment comes alive again, right? So let me give you, and uh, another thing about the story, and one of the things that I was taught is that whenever I learn a story, I need to understand where that story came from. Because where that story came from helps you to understand the story and what's at the heart of the story, what what the story means. So that we here today can relate to a story that's hundreds or even thousands of years old. Right. So here's an example. So this story comes from the Kwakulit people of Vancouver Island on the west coast of Canada. And the west coast of Canada is uh, rainforest because of the currents in the Pacific Ocean, it's considered a subtropical environment. Right. It's part of the Pacific Northwest, right? Absolutely right. So if you have that mental picture, these trees are huge, right? The trees are huge. You have the redwood, cedar, they're huge. You can take a whole group of people and join arms around Mm -hmm. the trunks of the trees. And because the trees are so big and their branches spread out, the sunlight filters down and it's very shadowy on the forest floor. So there's brush and there's shadows, and it's very easy to get lost in there. Mm -hmm. And you know that parents, when they have children, one of parents' responsibilities is to keep your child safe. So you're always telling your child, you know, especially when they're young, oh, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that, right? Mm -hmm. But that's where stories come in. Because you can say to a little child, you can say, now, don't run out in the street. You're going to get hit by a car. And a little child will go, yeah, okay. And they go outside and they're playing with their ball. And the ball, you know, rolls into the street. Without thinking, they'll go, because it's just words to them. You understand? Or you can say to that child, don't run out into the street. If you run out into the street, the slime monster going to stick its tentacles out of the sewer, going to suck you down in there, and ain't no Ninja Turtle going to save your hide, so don't run out in the street. You're not going to run out in the street. You know, don't touch the stove. You're going to get burnt. I don't know what, you know, they'll go, but, ah, but if you say, don't touch the stove, 
There's a dragon sleeping in the stove. You touch the stove, it's going to wake up, breathe its fire breath on you, turn you into a French fry. Don't touch the stove. Right. So you hear these stories. If you go back to your childhood, there's stories like that there. So the Kwakulit people, to keep their children from going into the forest, they would say, don't go into the forest. There are strange things in the shadows of the forest. Don't go into the forest. So there was a village of these first people between the forest and the ocean. And in this village, there was a very special little girl. As soon as she was born, her parents saw that something wasn't quite right. There was a little split in her upper lip, what today we call a cleft palate. So had this little split in her upper lip so that when it hadn't formed properly. So that when her teeth came in, you could see her teeth through that split in her lip. And because she looked different, some of the children, not all of them, but some of them, they teased her. Said, oh, look at that. I'm tease. Look at that. Look at that. She looks like a beaver. So she started wearing this name that everybody's calling her beaver face. But this little girl, she had a bright mind and a brave heart. And she didn't let these, this name, these few children bother her. She treated everyone with kindness, with thoughtfulness. And so because of that, she had friends, children who knew what she was like on the inside and weren't focusing on the outside. So one day Beaverface and her friends are playing in a field near the forest. And one of the children looked up into the shadows and goes, hey, psst. Look, there's something in there. Whoa, it's pink. Whoa, it's got glowing eyes. It's watching us. And they go running back to the village to their parents. They go, this is thing in the way. And the parents said, see, we told you there's strange things in the forest. You stay out of the forest, you'll be fine. Go play. <laughs> so the children go back to play. But if you remember when you were a child, you know, you're playing with your friends. Sometimes you're not paying attention to what's going on around you. So they're playing a game and they get a little closer to the forest. Uh, but, but, but they don't notice. And they play their game. They get a little closer to the forest. They don't notice. And they play their game and they get a little too close. And out from the shadows of the forest stepped Tsanakwa. Tsanakwa was a timber giant. She was tall as a tree. She had eyes like glowing hot coals. She had jagged teeth like long splinters of wood. She had bark-like skin, branch-like arms, twig-like fingers. And on her back was a woven bark basket like a backpack. And when she saw those children, her eyes glowed red. Drool started dripping off those splintery teeth. And the children are running like, ah! And Tanakwa started to pick up those children, just like you or I would pick berries off a bush. And every time she'd pick up a child, she'd take a little bit of sticky pine sap, and she'd stick their eyelids shut so they couldn't see, and she threw them in her basket. And she'd pick them up, stick the eyelids shut, throw them in a basket until finally she caught all the children. And the very last one she caught and stuck the eyelids shut, threw it in a basket, was little Beaver Face. And then Tanaka felt the basket. Oh, it's good. It's just enough for dinner. And she turned and she started to walk into the forest. So now think about this. She's got all these children in her back and they're bouncing up and down in the basket and they can't see and they know they're going home for dinner and they're not invited to dinner. They're going to be dinner. So they're going, oh, we're going to die. We're going to die. All of them, except for little beaver face, bright mind, brave heart. All she could think of was, I had to help my friends. So she reached into a little pouch, work pouch she had on her belt. And she took out a little round, hard ball of mountain goat fat. This is what their people used to chew the way we chew gum. And she put this little round, hard ball of fat in her mouth and she started to chew. And the more she chewed, 
the softer got and very oily. And she took some of that oil and she rubbed it on a pine sap and it took the pine sap away. It's true. If you ever get pine sap on your hands, this is the part of the podcast where we have like how helpful household hints. <laughs> if you take some oil and you, you, you rub it, it takes it away. So she cleaned the eyes of all her friends. And now that they could see, Beaver Face around her neck on a rawhide string, she had a clamshell knife that her father had made for her. So she took this clamshell knife and she cut a hole in the bottom of the basket, just big enough so now she could lower her friends one at a time and they could drop down to the ground and safely run away. And every time she lowered one of her friends down, she whispered to them, run back to the village, tell the warriors to come and bring their weapons. So now she set all of her friends free and she's the last one. And she was just about to jump down herself when all of a sudden Tanakwa stopped. Eh? What's this? Basket is too light. And she took off the basket she put in the ground and, and looked inside and there was this little beaver face. Hey, did you make my dinner go away? And that brave little girl she looked up at this huge monster and she said, yes, I set my friends free. Now you only have me to eat. Oh, yeah. Well, eat you I shall. There's not much meat on your scrawny little bones, but you'll make a tasty little snack. And she went to reach for beaver face. But as Tanakwa went to reach for beaver face, she stopped. Something caught her eye. You see, in Beaverface's village, one of the traditions was that when any girl got to be a certain age, she had her ears pierced and was given a beautiful pair of dangling earrings. They were made out of uh, little discs of abalone seashell so that when the sunlight hit them, they'd shimmer with uh, rainbow colors. And so Tanakwa sees these shimmering earrings and she goes, those are beautiful earrings. Hey. If I had earrings like that, I'd be beautiful too. Now, Beaver Face is looking up at this giant, thinking to herself, Ooh, lady, there's nothing going to make you beautiful. Uh, but, 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 but she didn't say that. <laughs> Instead, she got an idea. She said, uh, If you let me go, I'll, I'll give you my earrings. <laughs> I eat you, I take your earrings. Oh, said Beaver Face. Was starting to get an idea. She said, um, well, if you eat me and take my earrings, uh, you'll have the earrings all right, but you won't have any holes in your ears from which to hang them. Oh, well, then you will pierce holes in my ears. Oh, uh, well, uh, no offense, but uh, you have really big ears. <laughs> if you want me to pierce holes in those ears, I need a sharp, pointy wooden stick and a wooden mallet. Ah, oh, I have those at home. Fine, I'll have to take you home with me. And she picked up Beaver Face. Now, she couldn't put her in a basket because there was a hole in it, right? So she took Beaver Face and she stuck her under her arm and she walked into the forest. Now, Jason, the only thing I'm going to be telling you about Beaver Face stuck in that giant's armpit, Tanakwa never took a bath in her whole life. But fortunately for Beaver Face, she was so big, it only took her about three steps and she come to her lodge, her home. It was made out of tree bark. And she took Beaver Face inside and set her down on the ground. And Beaver Face looked and all over the ground inside the lodge, there were piles of treasure. There were woven blankets, copper bracelets, beautiful carved wooden masks. These were all the things that Sanakwa stole from people after she ate them. And Sanakwa went over by the fire. She took a big, found a big pointed wooden stick and a wooden mallet. She said, Ariel, pierce my ears. And her face took the stick and the mallet and she looks up, she said, uh, you're, you, you're too tall, I, I, I can't reach. You're gonna have to lie down on the ground. Fine. So Tanakwa lay down on the ground with her big ears spread out in the dirt. And Beaver Face took the point of the stick and put it in the lobe of one ear. She said, this might hurt a little bit. I, nothing hurts me. I am Tanakwa. Go ahead. All right. 
And so Beaverface pounded the stake down through the giant's ear, down into the ground underneath, pinning the ear to the ground. And then she ran around to the other side with another stake and she pounded it down to the other ear, pinning the other ear to the ground. And once Sanakwa started to realize that her head was pinned to the ground and she couldn't move, Beaver Face ran around the top of the head, took them out, and kapow! Smacked between the eyes. And we have ourselves one dead giant. And round about this time, the people come running up going, kill the giant, kill the giant. They got their war spears, kill the giant, kill the, kill the, whoa. Giant's dead, pinned to the ground. Who did this? And little beaver face stepped out from the shadows. She said, well, actually, uh, I did. Well, they had to believe her. She was the only one there. And then everybody saw the treasure. So they dropped their spears and everybody's running out with armfuls of blankets and bracelets and, and beautiful masks. Everybody except for one, Beaverface's father. You see, he already had his treasure. His treasure was his little girl. He held her up for everyone to see. And he said, my daughter, I am so proud of you. You are bright as the sun. You have saved your friends, killed the giant. And now Tanakwa will never bother us again. But Beaverface said, um, Father, I think Tanakwa is still powerful. I think we should leave her alone. But it was too late. And people came with torches and they threw the torches into the lodge. And pretty soon the lodge with Tanakwa inside was burning, burning, burning down to ashes. And the people were laughing and they were kicking the ashes and sparks were flying up in the air. When all of a sudden, from deep in the ground, a voice came rumbling up. Burn me, and I will bite you. Burn me, and I will drink your blood. And at that moment, each one of those little flying sparks turned into a little mosquito that drink our blood to this day. And as for Beaverface, no one ever called her that again. No, they called her bright as the sun. And she grew up to be an elder, a great teacher. And what she taught her people was that each of us has power inside. We have bright minds. We have brave hearts. And we also have the responsibility to use them to help others when they need it most. And that's how the story goes. That is beautiful. I know what a story is. Look at that story. So in that story, you have a basic picture of a certain culture in a certain environment, customs of that culture. And you also have lessons. The idea that, you know, outside appearance is not who we are. It's who we are inside. Right. Exactly. It's that, you know, like I go into schools all the time, like all over the world now. I mean, I've been fortunate to have all these experiences, blah, blah, blah. But and wherever you go, there's posters about bullying. You know, how right. do you stand up to a bully? What the, there it is. Bright mind, brave heart. She's a little child. This is a huge timber giant. Right. Bright mind, brave heart. She figures it's out applicable. Where to take them out. Exactly. So yeah, so a story basically can can have a, a core message and be a standalone thing. Or it can evolve into sort of a conceptual entity of its own, right? So like a, a mental framework that kind of explains and gives meaning to parts of life, like bullying, for example. So if you extend that concept and if these stories keep getting bigger and bigger and captured by because you know this was this was an indigenous story which is shared by uh, a certain small society but in you know today societies are much more interconnected much larger and they unite under bigger banners i would say in a way so that is the point where a story evolves into a narrative so in this sense, I would love to hear your opinion on stories or narratives capacity to work as a tool of community building, which was basically its function in these uh, indigenous societies, right? And still is to an extent. Okay, so let's take an area of conflict, all right? Let's take uh, the Middle East. So for how many years you have this ongoing conflict between 
people of the Jewish faith and the Jewish heritage and people of the Muslim faith and the Muslim heritage, right? Mm -hmm. So long ago in the land of, you know, what we now call Israel in the, in, in the land of the Middle East, among the Jewish people, there was a king and his name was Saul. And he was a fierce warrior. He would rouse his army and they would defend the Jewish people against any aggressor. And he was always victorious. And the people adored him. But at the same time, he was a troubled man, right? He always felt his weight of responsibility. He was very aggressive. Today, we'd say he had anger issues. He never felt settled inside. He was quick to anger. He, he got very jealous if the tension wasn't on him. And in his court was someone who had a son, and the son's name was David. Yes, that David. <laughs> David was a shepherd boy. He tended the sheep. And like any good shepherd, his responsibility was to drive away predators. And the way children guarding the sheep would drive away predators, they had a sling and they had stones, and they would throw the stones with their sling to drive away the predators. And David was very good. You know, I mean, practice every day. You're walking with the sheep. You got nothing else to do. Ping, ping, pick a place, ping, hit it dead on every single time. And the other thing that David was very good at was playing the lyre. And so his father thought, you know, maybe if he brought David to court and uh, had him play the lyre, that uh, it would calm King Saul down. So I brought David into court and David played the lyre and it did exactly that. Saul loved the music so much that every evening he'd have David play for him. And there came a time when the army of the Philistines came to threaten the people of the land. So Saul had to march out with his army and there was going to be this great battle. So he took David with him. So that David would play for him and keep him calm as he planned his attack. And you know how the story goes. There's a hill and this giant appears, this huge warrior, Goliath, who challenges the army of the, of the Jewish people. You know, who is brave enough to fight me? And if you win, we will go away and never bother you again. But if you cannot defeat me, we will destroy you, you know, right? No one wanted to face this huge giant warrior, except for David. And you know how the David, you know how this story goes. David takes his sling as the giant's laughing at him, and pow, smack between the eyes. So now David has saved the people of the land. And so everybody is like chanting his name, is David, is David, is David. And one afternoon, David is sitting in his garden and he's watching a spider. And there are two stalks of grass, and the spider is spinning her web in between these two stalks of grass. And she's going back and forth and back and forth for hours. And David's thinking to himself, all this work, all this work for one little web that can be destroyed in a breeze, you know, what, how could this, all this energy, it's like for nothing. And as he's sitting there contemplating this, Running into the garden is his, his friend, Jonathan, who happened to be son of Saul. Like David had met him in the court. They become friends. And Jonathan comes running in and says, David, David, you have to run. My father is so jealous that people are talking about you instead of him. He sent his guards. They're coming to kill you. So David takes off running and he runs out the gates of the city and he sees the guards coming and he runs up in the foothills and he's a child and these are guards, these are warriors, they're coming closer and closer and he comes running around a bend in the trail and he knows only moments behind him and up ahead he sees a little cave and he dives inside the cave and he crouches at the back in the darkness and he hears their footsteps coming closer and closer and then they stop at the entrance to the cave and he hears them say to each other, well, he can't be in here. And he hears the footsteps go away. And he waits for a while. And then he crawls back out. When he gets to the entrance, he sees that in a few moments between the time he went in and the time the guards came across the entrance was the web of a spider. Ah. Muhammad, prophet of Islam, 
preaching in the streets of Mecca that there is only one God, Allah, no other gods before him. And this was at a time when people believed there were gods everywhere. There's a god in the kitchen, there's a god in the garden, there's a god here, there's a god there. And each one had its own little statue, its own little idol. So here are all these idol sellers in the souk, in the marketplace. And here's this person is threatening their, their, their livelihood. So one day Muhammad and his wife and their children are having a meal. And a friend comes running in and says, Muhammad, you have to take your family and run. There's an angry mob coming to kill you. So they run out the gates of the city. You can see where we're going here. And they run up in the foothills with the angry mob behind them. And they find this cave and they, they, they dive inside. Muhammad and his wife got their hands over their children's mouth, trying to keep them quiet. And they hear the mob come a few moments later. Well, they can't, can't be here. And they, and they go away. And when they crawled back out, not only was there a spider web across the entrance, but on the ground in front of it was a nest of a dove with two eggs inside. It's the same story, Jason. And if these two peoples would sit down and share their stories, they would see not the differences that, that consume them, but they would see what they have in common. Now, am I so tripped out idealistic that i think this is going to stop all war and stop all conflict no but it's a step it's a step toward peace huh? absolutely that's what stories do that's the power of story is to find the common ground between us i i wish i had anything to add but you've explained this perfectly i think so completely agree with you amazing insights and it is so fascinating to see how through a story people that seemingly you know at least they personally believe that they have nothing in common and that's where all this tribalism and everything comes up but there's these like uniquely profoundly human things that we all share and in many times the more in touch with yourself you are the more you realize that these are the things that matter you know and stories in my experience at least especially coming from greece you know i grew up with the myths of Aesop which was an uh, ancient Greek storyteller. And, you know, they were just focused on very, very basic things about existence. It wasn't as complex and multifaceted as an ideology, a political approach. You know, it's much more grounded things over which we can bond. So at the micro scale, that is very obvious. And, and we saw that before when we talked about the, when you said that beautiful indigenous story of how they work as tools of social cohesion in these small communities. But in the digital age, you know, the age of interconnectedness of, of today, how wide do you think that we, we can extend our capacity to unite through stories? Could there be narratives on a global scale that are as convincing, let's say, as uh, what we are currently running off of, which is many dominant identities and ideologies and stories, basically, that we identify with. So on that, an example I would give is like the UN Charter of Human Rights. I would call it as sort of a, a proto-narrative that we all, at least in theory, you know, manage to agree to. So could this phenomenon be extended to, to include other parts of the human experience on that global scale, do you think? I think that one of the things that we need to do, and this is just me, right, is that we become so focused in on our own interactions as people, you know, the things that we feel we want, the things that we feel we need, you know, from individuals going out exponentially, you know, to nations, to everything that's going on in the world right now that we tend to forget that we are just but one kind of creature, right? And that we are, you know, if you, uh, Gaia, uh, James Lovelock, the, you know, the biosphere that, 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 that we, we are woven, we are woven into our world with all the other creatures. And that the, one of the things that stories can do, and you said it yourself, we have all these great complex issues that we're dealing with, but a story, if the right story, if you take a step back, all of a sudden, what's going on here, you have a different perspective, mm -hmm. you know, 
there's that wonderful Carl Sagan. There's a there's that video, the blue dot. If, 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 if never if you've never seen it, you should oh, check that's it my, out. That's my phone wallpaper, actually. Okay, right. But you know what I mean? That thing where it goes, and again, small, you know, it's it's right. It's it, it's all about perspective. The first time with the way it starts when you're on the moon and you see the earth rise behind it, right? Mm-hmm. So stories have the power to do that. There is a collection of stories called the Jataka. And they're a collection of Buddhist teaching stories that are 2,500 over now, 2,500 years old. And the way stories work is they travel out into the world. And you can find stories from parts of Africa, parts of here, parts of here, and you trace them. Oh, yeah, that comes from, right? So long ago, in a forest in India, there was a rabbit who was very kind and very generous. She gave of her time when anybody needed help. She shared whatever food she had. She was always giving to others. And this rabbit, she had two friends, two good friends, a tiger and a monkey. And they were her best friends. And so every afternoon, these three friends would meet in the middle of this forest in India. And the rabbit, she would talk to her friends. And she would try to teach them how important it was to always be kind, to always be generous. And one afternoon, while they were sitting there and the rabbit was talking quietly to her friends, come floating overhead on a cloud were three great gods that see the heaven. And they were had silken brocade robes and golden headpieces, and they're floating along on this cloud. And because they were gods, they could hear everything that was going on down on earth. And they heard the rabbit talking to her friends. And when they heard what she was saying, they turned to each other and they said, that, that's no ordinary creature. That's, that's a bodhisattva, a great teacher. And so they decided to test the creatures to make sure they were paying attention to rabbit's wise words. So these three great gods descended to earth and they disguised themselves over their silken brocade robes. They put on rags and they took off their golden headpieces and they smeared their faces with soot and ashes. So they looked like three beggars and they started to walk into the forest. Now, in India, like many other places in the world, um, the belief is when you see someone who has nothing, if you give something to them, it brings you favor in the eyes of the gods, right? So these three beggars are coming into the forest and all the creatures are, see them and they're all thinking, you know, what, what are we going to give them? We should have to give them. What are we going to give them? So rabbit, tiger, monkey, they meet in the middle of the forest and they're, you know, what should we give? What should we give? Rabbit gets an idea. She says, each of us should give that which is most precious to us. Right away, the monkey jumps up and goes, bananas, <laughs> bananas. I'm going to give them bananas. I'm not just 10 bananas or 20. I'm going to give them 100 bananas because I am so generous. Tiger says, ridiculous. You can get bananas anywhere. I'm going to give them a thick, juicy red piece of meat because I am generous. So now rabbit, She's thinking, you know, what can she give? You know, she can, you know, give some vegetables, some green leaves. You know, it's not very. And then she realized that what was most precious to her was herself. So that's what she decided to give. She decided that when the beggars came and built her fire, she was going to jump into the fire and cook herself so they would have something to eat. Oh, oh, said the monkey, she'll never do it. It'll hurt too much. Ridiculous, said the tiger. What's the use of being kind and generous if you're not around afterwards to hear people talking about you? Huh? So the tiger and the monkey, they go off to do what they're going to do. And the rabbit, she just hunkers down in the tall grass and she waits. And the beggars come into this clearing and they sit and they make a fire. And the first one to come back is monkey. And he's got his tail wrapped around this huge bunch of bananas. And he's pulling it along going, look at this, look at this. You know, and, and, and hundreds of his friends and relatives are jumping up and down on the trees. 
And they're jumping up and down go, and cheering. And he's going, thank you, thank you, thank you. Everybody jumps back. Tiger comes marching into the clearing. Head and tail held high and clenched in his sharp white teeth is a still dripping piece of meat. And he sets it down at the feet of the beggars and he roars, I am generous. Now all this time, Rabbit, she's hiding in the tall grass. And she can feel the heat from the fire. It's making her, her eyes water and her nose twitch. And she's trembling with the thought of what she's about to do. But then she remembered that what she was doing was giving of herself the kindest, most generous thing she could do. And so she took a deep breath. She hopped into the clearing. And she jumped into the fire. But the flames of the fire did not burn her because it was a fire of the gods. And all she felt was a cool breeze. And so she jumped out of the fire and, and she bowed before the beggars and she said, I, I, I'm sorry, I tried to cook myself so you'd have something to eat, but the fire wouldn't burn me. And then those beggars stood up and all the rags and soot dropped away. And here were these three great gods. And they all bowed down to the rabbit. <laughs> And they said, you are no ordinary creature. You are a bodhisattva, a great teacher. And then to make sure that everyone remembered Rabbit's wise words, the three gods flew across the land until they came to a mountain. And they grew and they grew until they were so big they could join hands around that mountain. And they squeezed that mountain like you or I would squeeze a lemon till the juice of the earth rose to the tip. And then they lifted that mountain and they flew with it up in the air, up in the sky, until they came to the full moon. Moon. And there on the face of the full moon, using the juice of the earth, they painted a picture of the rabbit. So we can look up on a full moon night and we can see her. She's dancing. Her head is back. You can see her ears and she is filled with joy. And we look up and we remember how important it is to always be kind, to always be generous and give of ourselves. And that's how the story goes. Universality, you know, the fundamental, the, the foundation of humanity, 2,500 year old story. Absolutely. Still works. And it's right up there. Yeah, look, anytime there's a moment, the world is our story. And we have to pay attention to the stories. And, and then it puts everything that we're dealing with in perspective. And it's the symbolism that amazes me, you know, and it always touches on, on nature, because that is really the only thing that everybody shares, for sure. Nature, the external nature and the internal nature of the human experience, you know. So a good way to connect with that nature is through this symbolism, you know, like the moon it's a universal experience for everyone, no matter what side of the world they happen to be born on. So it is the harnessing of this power, I believe, that has this potential to unite in a much more visceral level. You're, right. You're absolutely yeah. right. And it goes back to the idea that, you know, I've said this to you before, you know, like here you and I are two different generations living in two totally different places. And yet, if we were to meet and say, hey, how you doing? And, and sit down and have a cup of tea or whatever, and you start telling your story and I start telling my story, yeah, pretty soon we would see, you know, points of reference, ways Absolutely. that we could understand each other. Exactly. And it's these points of reference that just awaken empathy just instantly you know because you feel it in your core the moment you connect with someone that you felt something that they felt or they felt something that you have it's this it's it's a it's a blending of experiences it's it's very mystical to me in a way but i'm not going to get into that <laughs> no it's, um, it, it, it's 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 spiritual it, absolutely it small, small s spiritual absolutely. and i would say to you i mean it cut you off but I would say to you, I would take it one step further, because I read this whole piece about the difference between empathy and compassion. 
And empathy is when you recognize a strong emotion in someone else. But compassion is when you experience that same emotion. And that's what motivates you to, like it comes from compassion, from the Latin calm with passion, great feeling. Mm-hmm. The feeling is, emotional feeling is so strong that you don't just recognize it, you feel it yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's what brings you together. Completely. So yeah, that is the challenge of the times, you know? How do you manage to reproduce this completely natural phenomenon of human bonding into the grand scale? Because if you connect a world, the minds of the world, you know, through the internet, and you connect people's productive capacities, and we've seen that with, you know, especially after the pandemic, how remote work and online work can really produce some incredible results. And now there's companies popping up from in in all over the world that are not localized somewhere. They're just collections of people that do things now because of this new tool that we have. But we are starting to get an idea about the fact that it's hyper-connected, but not really emotionally connected. So what are your thoughts on that? Okay. So first of all, if you haven't seen this yet, Ilya Bondarenko is a young musician, a violinist, who lives in Kiev. And when the conflict started, and when they were on the outskirts of Kiev and there was bombings, he went down into the bomb shelter with his grandmother. And he brought his violin. And everybody does what, what you know, in a situation like that, you, you want to connect with other people. It goes, everything you've said, you know, for, you know, and I'm not just saying this because it's your podcast, for a young person, you, you have wisdom and you have an awareness. And he wanted to do something. So he gave his grandmother his phone and showed her how to record. And he's playing a song. He's playing a song in the bomb shelter, right? And it's a folk song. It's about a young woman with her girlfriends and she's about to get married and they're telling her, you know, this is your new life, this is what you're leaving behind. And you know, so it's one of those poignant melodies. And he just had it recorded. It took three takes because they had to stop for air raid sirens and for explosions. But once they recorded it, he put it on YouTube. And a young woman who was a violinist, I think, but she was in London, she saw this video and she started sending it out to other people. There is a video, it's called the International Violin Choir, Ilya Bondarenko, not over, I think it's 91, you see this mosaic on the screen, this is how you use the internet, Jason, right, on the screen, 91 different people with little flags from which country they are, and you've got violinists from the, the, the London Philharmonic, the New York Philharmonic, the Munich Philharmonic, and you've got people playing in their living rooms, you've got people that just they're just everyday people, and all of them play this, it, it's only like a minute and a half. But in that minute and a half, like one small little act, right? And someone seeing it. And then that's the positive power of the internet. And as far as the UN, Jason, my friend, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, maybe this is how we end it, but I'm gonna tell you my fantasy, right? I have a, a fantasy, Jason. I have a fantasy of going to the United Nations, New York City standing up in front of the General Assembly and telling them this story. There was a field, beautiful field, green grass, summertime, sun shining, birds singing. And on one side of this field in the tall grass, there lived with his mother, a little frog. And every day little frog would say to his mother, mama, mama may I go out and play? And she said, yes, my little frog, but don't go too far and don't talk to strangers. Yes, mama. And every day, little frog would go out, ha, ha, ha. On the other side of the field, in the tall grass, there lived with her mother, a little snake. And every day she'd say, mama, mama, may I go out and play? Yes, 
my little one, but don't go too far and don't talk to strangers. Yes, mama. And every day, little snake would go out, slither, slither, slither. So one day, frog goes out, hop, 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 and snake goes out, slither, 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 hop, 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 slither, 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 hop, 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 slither, slither, stop. They met in the middle of the field. And frog looks at snake and says, who are you? I'm snake. Who are you? I'm frog. Uh, What was that thing you were doing? Oh, I was slithering. That's what snakes do. Uh, What were you doing? Oh, I was hopping. That's what frogs do. Oh, could you teach me how to hop? Sure. Could you teach me how to slither? Sure. So now the two of them started to play together. And by the end of the afternoon, when it was time for them to go home to their mothers, Frog had taught Snake how to hop and Snake had taught Frog how to slither. And they say goodbye to each other. And Frog is going home, hop, slither, hop. And Snake is going home, slither, hop, slither. So now Frog is going home, hop, slither, hop, hop, slither, hop. His mother says, stop. What was that thing you were doing? Well, I, I, I was slithering. What? Where did you learn how to slither? Oh, from, from my new friend, Snake Snake. Mama Frog says, you, 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 you can't play with snakes. Snakes are our enemies. They, they, they eat frogs. You can never play with snake again. Oh. Meanwhile, Snake is going home. Slither, hop, slither, slither, hop. Stop, said her mother. What is that thing you were doing? I was hopping. What? Where did you learn how to hop? Oh, from my new friend, Frog. Frog? You can't play with frogs. Frogs are our food. And how many times have I told you not to play with your food? You can never play with frog again. Oh. So next day, frog goes out to one side of the field. Hop, hop, hop. And snake goes out to the other side of the field. Slither, slither, slither. And they look across at each other. And they're sad for a moment. But then frog looks at snake. Snake looks at frog. And they both smile. And frog goes off, hop, slither, hop. And snake goes off, slither, hop, slither. Because once we make friends, we stay friends forever. That is beautiful. So I I stand up and it gets translated into a hundred languages and they can't read or go pee or anything until they hear that story. That's my fantasy. I think that would make a bigger impact than anybody would uh, expect. probably not but like you know i can dream what can i say yeah in my fantasies as well <laughs> well jamie i cannot express with words how incredible this conversation was and how your insights come from a much more human side of your brain and talking to a much more human side of mine i was very happy to be here with you and talk to you so thank you I want to thank you. And I told you this before, you know, uh, I, uh, my wife and I, we have two, two sons. They're, you know, they're young adults now. One's 30, one's 28. And our younger son, uh, actually, he just proposed. And they, they oh, got a girlfriend of seven years. And, and she is a, like a social justice warrior. But these three young people, you know, whenever we get together, uh, you know, I can be listening to the news and everything that's going on, but when we meet with them, I still feel like there's hope in the world. And spending this time with you, even though we're just zooming, I feel the same way. You know. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Oh, <laughs> good. Thanks for this. Yeah. Ciao. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao.